A little more than a year ago, Australia signed the AUKUS agreement with the United States and the United Kingdom. The agreement is squarely aimed at dealing with what politicians and commentators call the China threat. And at its heart is the commitment by Australia to buy eight nuclear-powered submarines from either the US or the UK. And that goes alongside Labour committing to a significant ramping up of military expenditure, including the purchase of hypersonic missiles and expanding the armed forces. The US and China are in imperialist competition to dominate the Western Pacific. There's a terrible threat of war, a war that could potentially be triggered by a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Why is Australia involved in this growing confrontation? Is Australia merely a US puppet or a regional power trying to ensure its continuing regional domination? These issues and more are discussed in a new book by Clinton Fernandez entitled Sub-Imperial Power, Australia in the International Arena, published by Melbourne University Press. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Clinton, who is a professor of international and political studies at the University of New South Wales. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm or Melbourne. So welcome, Clinton. Uh, thank you for having me. And congratulations on the book. Let's start with AUKUS. What was Morrison aiming to achieve by initiating the plan for nuclear-powered submarines, a plan that Albanese has happily rubber-stamped? Of course, nobody knows what's in the mind of the policymaker, but at least uh, what you can say is that it's well within the mainstream of Australian strategic policy, which is to acquire equipment whose principal aim is interoperability with the United States, or before that, Great Britain. And uh, not so much to defend Australia. Uh, there is there are p- p- particularities about Morrison himself. I mean, don't forget that in 2018, uh, this is in the years before the bushfires and the pandemic and everything else. Uh, his initiative was uh, to have priority boarding uh, for veterans uh, at uh, uh, airlines, you know, at, at airport check-ins and airport uh, uh, around Australia. And um, they wanted to acknowledge veterans and thank you for your service and so on. So there was a particular type of American style um, also involved in this way of thinking. And so acquiring U.S. supplied or British supplied nuclear powered submarines uh, would have had the additional uh, uh, attraction to him of getting us closer to the United States. Uh, But underlying all that is uh, the desire to show relevance to the United States and to integrate your defence force with the defence force of the United States. And let's just think a moment about how much the contribution of nuclear-powered submarines, which would be armed with uh, Tomahawk cruise missiles, how much more dangerous it makes the region. Can you sort of talk about why nuclear-powered submarines are a, a major step towards aggression? Okay, so... I take, you know, pretty seriously the idea that Australia should have a defence force, if for no other reason than uh, that the Australian public expects it. And so anyone who 
comes to the Australian public with a, a program of, of uh, you know, various kinds, if they don't take defense seriously, then they're not going to get a hearing from the mainstream. Um, and so I, I also happen to be a, a person who gets, a, you know, who thinks seriously about defense. So I take defense seriously, and submarines in that context are essential uh, for Australia's defense. But what kind of submarines? You know, the role of submarines uh, is it could be defensive, and uh, uh, if you were to get conventionally powered submarines, which we're going to talk about in a second, uh, then they would serve the purpose of defending Australia. But nuclear-powered submarines uh, have a principal focus, which is to have nothing to do with defending Australia, but rather projecting power far away from Australia and being interoperable with the United States. Now, whether they have uh, cruise missiles or you know, equipped for cruise missiles uh, is kind of going to add to the, uh, the, the, the danger of the confrontation, uh, but really uh, patrolling far away from Australia in order to, uh, to uh, you know, do target acquisition um, on Chinese vessels, uh, that is difficult enough for, uh, for, for China. You know, so it, it, it's not the, what the cruise missiles carry in terms of tomahawks and all. The very act of acquiring nuclear-powered submarines shows that you're not talking about defending Australia. These submarines are not for our defense. They are for expeditionary war and interoperability far from our shores. Your core argument in the book, according to my understanding, is that the US is the world's imperialist power and that Australia plays a subordinate but supporting role. So do you want to take us through that? Yeah, sure. Uh, and here I'll get into things that I had to cut out of the book uh, for reasons of space. Uh, I wanted to lay out a, a full structure of uh, how the imperial order uh, is structured. And so what I say is the United States sits at the apex of a hierarchically structured imperial system. There are other imperial powers, but none as powerful as the United States. So France, for example, uh, sits at the apex of a minor system of imperial power. Uh, its uh, former colonies in Africa, for example, uh, it maintains control over those colonies via uh, the currency instrument, the CFA franc, for example. Uh, the purpose of these arrangements is to limit the sovereignty of those countries. And so I see imperialism in a very traditional way, uh, the way that uh, people like Julius Caesar would have seen it, or that Lord Curzon, um, the, the British statesman, uh, uh, would have seen it, which is that an empire is about control of another country's sovereignty. Its physical occupation is, is simply a way to, uh, uh, to control sovereignty, like the British physically directly ruling India, for example, or France directly ruling Indochina. Those were ways in which you control sovereignty, but you can control sovereignty through other means, such as uh, ensuring that currencies are improbable or are pegged to a certain uh, a master currency, that you intervene or you have the threat of intervention, you have your intelligence uh, agencies that are manipulating uh, policies in the countries you want, to, you want to control. And so France is an imperial power. Uh, it's just some minor imperial power because, you know, on the day that Prime Minister Morrison announced that he'd have AUKUS, the Australian-UK-US uh, uh, arrangement, France was announcing, you know, Macron was announcing uh, that French forces had killed some terrorists in uh, in, 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 in French-speaking Africa. Well, it wasn't French forces, it was American forces that supplied French forces that allowed them to do it. France simply doesn't have the strategic element, doesn't have the drones, doesn't have the intelligence needed to, uh, to police its own empire. So the U.S. sits at the apex of an imperial system, 
then there is a, a separate but dependent imperial power like France. Um, there is a former imperial power, uh, the United Kingdom, which possesses uh, certain key territories as a result uh, of being a former imperial power, and these territories are extremely valuable to the current imperial power. I'm thinking about places like Diego Garcia uh, in the Indian Ocean, uh, which is um, now being used by the United States, but also uh, a number of tax havens uh, which uh, are run by the British. Uh, now, there are sub-imperial powers which are both sub-imperial and powerful, meaning they subordinate their sovereignty in the interests of the imperial power and its interests, but they also project power and, uh, you know, they, they, they perform a kind of enforcement role. And the classic uh, two sub-imperial powers are Israel and Australia because they share certain characteristics that other countries do not. And that is, they are advanced societies with uh, uh, populations that are very pro-US and very pro-US alliance. Don't forget that the lowest that popular support in Australia was for the US alliance was during the Iraq invasion. 74% of the population supported uh, the US alliance even at the time of the Iraq invasion. That was the lowest support. It's usually about 85, 86%. Now, so that, that's sort of similar in Israel. Now, there are other countries that I would have listed if I had a longer book as attempting to try to be sub-imperial, but not really getting there. And that's Singapore in our region, uh, which also has an advanced, highly educated population that uh, you know hosts US naval assets uh, on its territory, but simply isn't as uh, active in expeditionary war as Australia. And in the, in the Middle East, there's the United Arab Emirates, which possesses the next most advanced air force in the region, and it, you know is a very professional force, but simply doesn't have the heft and the fat uh, that Israel does. And outside that, you've got a number of countries that are not quite so eager to conduct expeditionary wars, uh, but nevertheless, you know, they have to go along with the United States uh, because they they benefit from the overall system uh, of an unequal society, uh, unequal global society you know, with uh, the former third world countries still in, the, still in a dependent uh, area. So those those countries in the northern Atlantic, uh, Germany, France, and so on, uh, they are uh, subordinate to the United States. Uh, they don't like the idea, they grumble, but they are ultimately they obey orders. Outside that system, there is another country, China, the People's Republic of China, which doesn't follow orders. I mean, and, and that's sort of the big problem with China. Uh, so that's basically how I see the, see the, uh, the world structured through the book anyway. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I, I must admit when I read the book, I didn't quite get that picture. You say that you weren't able to expand on that point, which I think is a, a shame. Now, there's no argument from me that the United States uh, stands at the apex of world power, although arguably it's in decline. And that's part of the reason why there's tension between the US and China. But I suppose from my point of view, drawing on a, a Leninist framework, Imperialism isn't just about big powers dominating small powers. It's also about the competition between those powers for, for uh, power and influence and, and, and domination. And in that sense, I would see some of the countries you've mentioned as being imperialist powers, France, Britain, for, for, for certain, because they project power on a global scale and they have nuclear weapons to back it up. And from that, I would see sub-imperial power and this is really at the heart of your book, so it's worth teasing this out. I'd see sub-imperialist powers 
as being those who try to dominate on a regional level and are also thrown into competition and conflict. So from my point of view, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey and the Middle East are all sub-imperial powers, all trying to throw their weight around in the region, or India and Pakistan in South Asia, and obviously Australia in the South Pacific and, the, and Melanesia. How do you feel about that definition? You probably disagree, but but why? Well, no, I, I, I'd say that given the framework you adopt, uh, your definition is quite cogent. Uh, it's just that uh, I'm looking at it from the way, see, I'm not uh, uh, from that, that, that background or tradition. Uh, I look at it more the way the United States itself looks at it through the diplomatic archives. And the US uh, you know, refers to Britain privately as our lieutenant. Uh, the, 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 the polite word is partner, but they are our lieutenant. And there's a, a quote from that in the book with a footnote to it. You can see it's actually from the diplomatic history uh, studies. Now, I can't see India and Pakistan having anything like the clout um, of, uh, to, to be able to control other countries' sovereignties the way, say, France does in, in French-speaking Africa. Yeah, there is simply nothing that uh, Pakistan can do uh, to compel uh, any of its neighbors uh, to integrate and subordinate their economies to Pakistan. Uh, we, I, I think it's simply the different framework you and I are adopting. I, I see you know, empire as uh, the control of sovereignty rather than territory. To the extent that there is you know, competition and cooperation, well, these are just things that occur uh, in that framework. And so um, Germany, for example, uh, you know, is, I, I couldn't see it as an imperial power in that sense, because you know, it, it is able to integrate countries to its west and its east into the German system, but it doesn't have the, the ability to threaten them um, to uh, sponsor coups d'etat, things like that. Japan, for example, barely possesses a foreign intelligence service and is heavily constrained by how it can uh, deploy its military overseas. And so if you were to say Japan's an imperial power, then well, of course, I, I wouldn't disagree because of the framework you're adopting. But the idea that you're the regional enforcer, the, the, you know, the, the, the cop on the beat, the gender, is uh, something that Israel does very effectively in the Middle East. But it also does it beyond the Middle East. You know, it has its own intelligence services that have intervened in Central America, for example, or in South Africa. Now, in order to allow the United States to keep uh, supporting the regimes that it wants to support without congressional interference. Uh, and Australia performs that role as well. In fact, one of the reasons we limit our own sovereignty, the ability of our parliament to scrutinize our intelligence agencies, is that it allows us to go to the United States and say, look, we can do all these things that you want done, uh, and you don't have to worry about congressional interference, uh, you know, what anybody else might call democratic accountability. And so, uh, you know, we, we then do uh, compete uh, with other countries in the region, we cooperate, we compete. But I think that the purpose of my framework, which is basically, you know, how the, how the system itself sees, you know, sees itself, uh, sees the occurs in the United States today. Uh, I, I think the, the need to find, uh, to explain everything is not necessary uh, from that framework. It's simply a, a trying to show how it works at a certain level of abstraction. No, I, I, I take that. I take that point. Um, I think it's still interesting to reflect on the extent to which the uh, second or third layer powers can still have and do still have their own capital uh, and national interests. So, for yes, instance, yes, for a, a, if I could just cut in, yeah, 
sorry, I just want to say, I, I don't disagree at all that the internal structure, economic, uh, ideological, political structure, uh, in particular, the interest of the dominant economic formations in any country, I, I don't, don't disagree at all that a country's defense and foreign policies are heavily influenced by that. You know, so it's not, uh, it's not, I don't know if it's Leninist so much as, as basically what just seems to be pretty obvious, uh, that the national interest is sort of the objectives of the dominant economic sectors of any society, given that these societies are hierarchically structured along class lines. Now, and if that, if that is sort of what you're saying, then of course, pardon me, because I, I'm not familiar with the literature that you're, you're, you're using. Uh, but, uh, so of course, you know, Turkey uh, and Saudi Arabia and so on, they, they have foreign policies and defense policies that reflect their interests. But I can't see Iran, for example, um, as a sub-imperial power intervening uh, in order to uphold somebody else's imperial um, uh, power, because uh, that, that's how I would see a sub-imperial power, that it is actually upholding an imperial order uh, that, it, that is actually benefiting somebody else of the uh, ultimate. I just don't see Iran doing that. And it tried during the Shah, before the Islamic Revolution in 1979, but it just simply didn't have uh, the clout, the, the real force needed to do it. You know, these are societies that, that can, are strong internally, but they can't operate that far afield, unlike Israel and Australia, and to a certain extent, Singapore and, and the United Arab Emirates. Yeah, no, there are certainly differences in, in, in power and uh, influence. I suppose I was just reflecting on the fact that even whether it's your definition or my definition, the, the second ranking powers don't always do what America wants. So for a long period, um, not now because of Brexit, but for a long period, Britain was part of the European Union and the EEC before that. And that was clearly an attempt to build a, a European-wide uh, alternative uh, to US capitalism, at least at, at some level, a rival. So Britain could be both a lieutenant and uh, adopt a different uh, a position which was not necessarily pro-US. Uh, and I'm just thinking of Saudi Arabia very recently. Uh, Biden goes there, does a fist bump with, uh, with the, the murderer who basically heads the government. And then Saudi Arabia turns around and buys oil and sells oil and deals with oil with Russia in complete uh, disdain for the uh, US strategic yes. approach towards Ukraine. So these countries don't automatically follow the US line. So I suppose my question in that regard is, what do you say to people, especially those on the left, who say that Australia is merely a puppet that dances at the end of America's strings? Yeah, okay, so I think that uh, one shouldn't expect a, a, a concept or a theory, if you prefer that word, to do too much. You know, it's, uh, uh, it, that's why the definition that I adopt is sort of quite narrow, because I, I kind of have a, have, have, I expect less of, of uh, uh, theories of the social sciences. Uh, I, I think that uh, we're trying to make them so comprehensive, you, you kind of wind up simply chasing the tail after a while and then have endless debates about, about the uh, contradictions that start appearing once you make things too, too detailed. So I think a, a narrow uh, definition, or what I might call a more elegant definition, you might call it a more limited definition, is basically all that I, I think we can we can rely on in the social sciences because the world is far too complex. Nevertheless, uh, for Australia, uh, it's clear we are not merely a puppet um, that dances at the end of America's strings, but we have made a an independent decision to subordinate our sovereignty. And I say this for the following reasons. Uh, uh, we have the ability to act independently, including economically, if we choose. And that was done uh, in the early years after the, first, after the Second World War, 
when Curtin, followed by Chifley, uh, began taking independent decisions um, and then disregarding the United States' wish that Australia focus on primary uh, commodities like, like beef and wheat and things like that. In fact, a high-level U.S. study criticized Australia's post-war industrialization plans by complaining that we were engaging in uh, poorly conceived uh, projects of industrialization. They were opposed to things like the, the car, the holding car. The, the actions that the, the Curtin government took, declaring its 1945 white paper on full employment, the, uh, the young secretary of the Department of External Affairs, John Burton, his attempts to get closer to the non-aligned movement, uh, to befriend Nehru, I think that was a genuinely different complexion than uh, the, the policy of Menzies. You know, as soon as Menzies came into, into office, his foreign minister, Percy Spender, got rid of John Burton, um, the, 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 the external affairs secretary. And so the, uh, the actions that were taken could be taken. You know, unlike, say, you know, a, a small poor country like Nauru, which really doesn't have a choice. You know, we, we are not like that. We, we have an independent resource base. We have the ability to control it. There is an expectation among our population uh, that you know Australians will be in charge of uh, the commanding heights of the economy, at least figuratively. You know, we don't have foreign judges, for example, uh, running our judiciary like Papua New Guinea sometimes had, or Fiji, uh, or, or Tonga. And so we are not simply a puppet. It, it is a choice made because of the understanding that the international, so-called rules-based international order, uh, is an imperial tributary system. And uh, all state capitalist economies, um, like ours, like the United States, benefit uh, from, from that arrangement. You see, so that, that's how I, I would see uh, the, the decision made. And I think, I think there's enough evidentiary record in the archives to demonstrate that. Now, it, it's something of an aside, but I was curious why when you talk of Australia's domination of the region, you refer quite specifically to the Southwest Pacific and Timor-Leste, but not to Papua New Guinea. And given that PNG is a former colony, Australia gives it something like $600 million a year, clearly to buy influence. And Australian miners have always had significant interest there. I was just wondering why it plays so little part in your argument. David, you know, you're right, but it's reasons of space. I had 30,000 words to make the argument. And so when I said the Southwest Pacific and Timor-Leste, I'm including the countries in the Southwest Pacific, like Papua New Guinea, uh, the Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, uh, and, uh, you know, until recent years, Fiji. Uh, these are, and of course, Nauru. So these are traditional areas of our influence. Basically, countries we call our Pacific family uh, are the ones I'm referring to as our client states. Absolutely, Papua New Guinea would have been in, uh, but... The reason I focused on Timor was that it's in the news and more people know about the spying on Timor, um, the use of the foreign aid budget to control its society, to, to, to make it dependent. And if I were to talk about the rest of the Southwest Pacific, then I think in the, just in order to, uh, to be fair to the reader, I'd have had to include a paragraph on each of those countries in the Southwest Pacific to show you know, uh, how uh, they are in fact not our Pacific family, but our vassal states. And I didn't have the space. And that's basically the reason. Okay, fair enough. Let's not talk about what you couldn't fit in. Let's talk about what you actually <laughs> did fit in. And one of the interesting aspects of the book uh, I found is the way you trace the way that military and economic power are interweaved. And you're really scathing of the so-called rules-based international order. Can you tell us why? So my primary focus is to kind of 
talk to my readership, that's the Australian public, you know, it's not so much other academics. Uh, but I, I, I found that they were keep, they were, you know, the public kept repeating things like rules-based order and journalists, uh, people I knew, kept saying that and they were borrowing and, and of course academic life was full of that stuff. I, I thought it was revealing that people who talked about a rules-based international order, now this is at the policy level, the politicians and so on, they always avoid talking about uh, an international order based on international law um, or say the United Nations Charter. And I, I realized that we were in the presence of what an anthropologist would easily recognize as a taboo, some terrifying fact that cannot be uttered. And that fact is that the United States is an imperial power and that Australia is itself an imperial power towards the Southwest Pacific and Timor-Leste. Uh, and I bring Timor-Leste into the Southwest Pacific because although it's in Southeast Asia, it has a, a political, a demographic, and economic structure very much like a small island developing state in the Southwest Pacific. Now, the rules-based order, and people keep talking about rules-based order, but they don't, they don't want to say what the rules are, and there is endless debates about, about what, is, what, what rules are we talking about. Uh, it's pretty clear that there is some avoidance going on. There is, there is a taboo, which can't be mentioned. And it's, it was pretty obvious after that, um, that this rules-based order was covered for imperial orders, uh, and military force creates the structure within which economic power can be, uh, can be exercised. Uh, you know, so Second World War, for example, uh, military force created a particular structure within which the United States could influence and control Japan's economic development. You know, it was uh, military force in, in Southeast Asia, you know, in uh, Malaya in Vietnam, very importantly in Indonesia, the destruction of the Indonesian Communist Party. Uh, all of those things were done in order to ensure that Japan remained the engine of capitalist growth uh, in Asia. Just as the subordination of Malaya, for example, was designed to ensure that Britain could be the engine of capitalist growth in, in Europe, uh, same as France and Indochina. Uh, and so, you know, I, I look at military power creating the conditions and, and, and the threat of force and intelligence operations uh, creating the conditions within which economic extraction can occur and economic control can occur. Uh, that's that's rules-based international order. Uh, and one has to show how it works, you know, and I think I've done that through the doctrine of comparative advantage um, in which uh, comparative advantage is an economic doctrine, but in, in plain English it means stay in your place. You know, stay in your place, don't develop. Uh, if, if you follow what we've done in the United States, um, then you could have a steel industry, uh, you could have a car industry, you could have an internet. Don't do that. Uh, subordinate your economy to the interests of the global north. Uh, that's a rules-based international order. One of the things you raise in the book is secrecy, and you've touched on that uh, already. Uh, and one of the areas where secrecy is greatest, uh, the US bases, the facilities in Australia like Pine Gap or Northwest Cape, what do you feel people need to know about those facilities? At the technical level, uh, they needn't be intimidated. It is actually very simple to understand at a certain level of abstraction. Think of a car radio uh, or any kind of radio with an antenna. Uh, you've got knobs and dials on your dashboard that allow you to tune your car antenna, your car radio, to receive a particular radio station. Well, there are satellites surrounding the Earth, they are orbiting the Earth, and they are like the radio antenna. And then there is Pine Gap, which is a ground control station, and they're like the knobs of your, 
on your dashboard. So they allow people at Pine Gap to tune the antennae of the satellites that are already up in space. Satellites get shot up into the, into the atmosphere, beyond the atmosphere into space, and then they open up antennae in space, in, or once they're in orbit, in order to receive signals. And so what Pine Gap does is it provides intelligence collection, but also targeting information. It allows the United States and its allies to target countries, their militaries, to, to identify the locations of, of enemy forces um, in order to uh, uh, you know, allow them to be attacked by missiles or, uh, or conventional uh, you know, ground-based forces. Northwest Cape does something similar in the sense that it is a retrans station, so retransmission station. Uh, it, it allows signals to be sent uh, to submarines that are in the Pacific Ocean or the Indian Ocean because of, of where it is in the northwest part of Australia. And these signals might originate in the United States, but then there is a retrans site simply because, you know, the Earth is very large um, and you need some place in order to keep, keep these submarines in contact. Some of it is just benign because, you know, submarines should not be allowed to get out of contact. That's how the submarines itself know that nuclear war has not broken out. Uh, but they, these things allow targeting information and firing orders so that in the event of a conflict, Northwest Cape uh, would be the, the, the transmission site from which the United States would order its hunter-killer submarines to target Chinese vessels. That's basically what these intelligence uh, you know, facilities do. And as you say in the book, the Australian public, in fact Australian MPs, are really allowed to know very little about what goes on there, and yet that's quite clearly a vital part of the US's war-fighting exactly. capability. Exactly. And, and, exactly. And so that's, that's the thing, right? It's the United States Senators on the Senate uh, Armed Forces Committee, for example, or the Intelligence Committee, they can go to Pine Gap and get a confidential briefing about what's going on. That simply isn't true for our parliament. You know, our parliamentary joint committee on intelligence and security is often called the Powerful Intelligence Committee. Just Google the phrase, Powerful Intelligence Committee, that, that you keep hearing in the Fairfax 9 press and elsewhere. In fact, it's powerless. It, it, it cannot examine any intelligence operation, whether past, present, or proposed. Now, that's a choice. You know, we, our hands are not tied. We've chosen to tie Parliament's hands in order to go to the United States and say, look, we can do what you want done without congressional oversight, without congressional scrutiny. What you can't do in the United States, you can do via Australia. And this process of interoperability is one that's really speeded up, it seems to me, even in the last few months, and certainly, obviously, not uh, not something you could reflect on in your book, because that's a longer term project. But not only do we now have US Marines in Darwin, but now there's going to be uh, an expanded Air Force presence for B-52s, American B-52s, which are capable of carrying yeah. nuclear weapons. American nuclear powered submarines are likely to be based uh, for the foreseeable future on, on the West Coast. That process is really stepping up. And so I really want to sort of uh, bring this discussion to, uh, to a conclusion around how we understand that. Because I think most yeah. people who are opposed to this kind of drive to war see the US as imposing its will on Australia. And you push back towards the end of your book by calling for Australia to be a neutral power, which... It's an attractive notion for many people. Do, do I say that, do I? I? That was sort of my interpretation of... of... Okay, now, look, uh, um, well, I, 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 actually, I just saw, I'll just clarify. My aim, actually, I, I, what I said was that the Global South is going its own way and it's, it's interested in a democratic, equitable, international order. 
and that given Australia's uh, sub-imperial status, uh, Australia is not going to go along with it. Um, that's basically how, how the book ends. I, I haven't actually called for neutrality or anything like that. But the purpose of the book is to simply inform the public because you have certain ability at university to spend time to think about these matters. And so you just want to be able to, uh, to end the mystification and then let the public decide what they, what they think uh, should happen. I mean, that's really what the book is. I, I don't think I've ever called for, for neutrality. I, I wouldn't be opposed to us having an independent defense policy. And I think that the acquisition of these nuclear-powered submarines makes us even more dependent. Okay, uh, Clinton, but, I, uh, I apologize if I've put words into your mouth. But no, I, and I'm not trying. I'm not trying to um, catch you out here. I'm. I'm really. I'm just going to quote a couple of lines well, about neutrality is becoming a serious option. Once known as non-alignment, a version of it is likely to resurface in calls for a multipolar world. And the implication is, to me as a reader, that you thought that was a good thing. But look, if that's not quite what you think, oh, that... I was referring. I was referring to the global south. Uh, you know that, that the. The chapter's title, that chapter you quoted from, is called Neither Their War Nor Their Peace. And that's the direction in which the Global South is going. But look, I, I, I think what you bring up, what you brought before, is extremely valuable, and I'd just like to hit it just harder. Uh, about this idea that we're going to see more and more forces here, uh, the goal is to uh, advance us from being a sub imperial power to being a protectorate. Okay? This is a deliberate choice made by policymakers. Uh, so that the number of American troops will swell by the middle of this decade uh, to about 50,000. And we will be like South Korea or Japan's Okinawa. Uh, that, that is the actual goal of the policy. It is to make us so relevant to the United States and so valuable by, by installing American you know, troops here. Uh, and and I, what I say in the book is that as it become, as say Japan's Okinawa bases become more vulnerable, because they are within range of Chinese short-range missiles. Uh, our policymakers see it as an opportunity for us to be more relevant to the United States by hosting U.S. forces. So I would say that the 2,500 Marines that were announced by Barack Obama and Judah Gillard will swell to about 50,000, and we will be a protectorate. Uh, Northern Australia will be a protectorate of the United States, the way that you know there are 38,000 troops in, in South Korea and there were about 35,000 troops in Japan uh, and, you know, a comparable number in the Philippines, for example, uh, in the 1970s and 80s. I would say that Australia is going to go down that path. And it's not, it's not a path, path being imposed on us. It is, a, it is a choice by policymakers to do this. And I think that's the nub of the argument, not between you and me, but uh, I think more broadly on the left and amongst anti-war and uh, peace activists, that this isn't the United States imposing a decision it's the australian ruling class making a judgment that it's in their interests uh, to engage ever more deeply with the united states and to ensure that the united states is present in the region as a guarantor of australian power that's how i suppose i would phrase it no that's right but but david i mean i I, so this is the thing because i don't come from the uh, kind of tradition i'm 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 not friendly with people in in these traditions but and i you know uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not part of that, that 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 tradition, so I don't understand how various people on on the left see it. I'm looking at it more from the diplomatic archives, which which basically you know since the British garrison de- departed in 1870, uh, Australia has been trying to keep keep uh, Britain, <laughs> you know, uh, thinking about Australia and committed to 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 the, to the projection of force from 
uh, you know, the six colonies and then the Commonwealth. And so uh, it's, it's pretty obvious from the internal planning record that this is not being forced on us. Uh, it, you know, it is, it is well within the tradition that goes back, you know, 150 years uh, of an independent choice to uphold uh, an imperial order uh, by, uh, and, and Australia's privileged place within it by bringing an imperial power into Australia and into the region and, and by intervening repeatedly uh, to ensure that that imperial power remains engaged with our region and with us having a, a, a privileged place within it. I think that that's very well put. I'd like to congratulate you again on the book. I'd like to congratulate you as well on uh, standing firm as an independent thinker in the foreign affairs space where sometimes originality and independence is not always valued by the powers that be. Uh, and good on you for continuing to research and argue and read and write views which uh, are not always palatable uh, to, to the mainstream. And I thank you for that. And thank you for your time today. Uh, thank you for the opportunity, David. I appreciate your questions. And I, you know, clearly, uh, you, you, you're a hardworking fellow. You think about these matters. Um, and uh, the questions were non-superficial. So thank you. Okay. Have a good day.